It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Thursday, June 4, 2020. On today's episode, we have author Claire Holden Rothman, who will be discussing her book, Lear's Shadow, which was the winner of the 2019 Vine Prize. We also have Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess. On this date in history, in 1919, the U.S. Congress passed the Women's Suffrage Bill, which is also referred to as the 19th Amendment, in which women were given the right to vote. In 1940, Prime Minister Winston Churchill gave his famous We Shall Fight on the Beaches speech to the House of Commons. This was the second of three major speeches that Churchill gave around the time of the period of the Battle of France. The others are the Blood, Toil, Tears, and Sweat speech from May 13, which was uh, two days after he became Prime Minister. And the third was the This Was Their Finest Hour speech of June 18, which was a few days after the first German troops had entered Paris and things were looking very grim. But in this speech, in the We Shall Fight on the Beaches speech, Churchill begins by talking about a great military disaster. He warns of a possible invasion attempt by the Nazis. But he also has to keep people motivated. He also has to make people realize that that they can win. They will eventually win. And he has to prepare people for the fact that France may fall. So he's doing all this in the speech. And the speech ends with the final paragraph in which he tries to pull the country together and get them ready for a long, hard battle. Sir, I have myself full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made, as they are being made, we should prove ourselves once more able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary for years, if necessary alone. At any rate, that is what we are going to try to do. That is the resolve of His Majesty's government, every man of them. That is the will of Parliament and the nation. The British Empire and the French Republic, linked together in their cause and in their need, will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. That was Prime Minister Winston Churchill on this date, June 4, 1940, speaking to the British House of Commons. And now, here's author... Claire Holden Rothman. So this is Claire Rothman, and uh, I'm here to tell you about um, my latest novel, which is Lear's Shadow. 
And Lear's Shadow is uh, set mostly in Montreal, like most of my novels. And it takes us back to um, 2012. It's set in 2012 in Montreal. So I've written a couple of other novels and they are historical. One was uh, The Heart Specialist and it was written a long time ago. Uh, well, it was came out in 2009, but it is about the turn of the century, so the very beginning of the 20th century in uh, Montreal. And the second one is My October, and that one was set in 2001, but talks about the October crisis and the effects of the October crisis on characters in Montreal. This one, Lear Shadow, is set in 2012. And that was the year, if you remember, of the uh, Printemps Érable. And Printemps Érable, I don't know if you remember that spring, it was a gorgeous early warm spring and um, the streets were full of students protesting. So now our streets are absolutely empty, um, but uh, then they were full of crowds and uh, after that beautiful, early, warm spring, the weather turned suddenly very wild and full of violent storms. And the weather was on everybody's lips. We were talking about it a lot in Montreal. So that summer, the novel's main character, B. Rose, B-B-E-A, Rose, finds her life just as tempestuous as the weather. She is about to turn 40, and 40, as many of us know, is a hard age for a lot of women. Uh, she has just lost her business, which was a yoga studio. Uh, she, she is broke. She's penniless. She had a lover for seven years uh, who happened to be her business partner, also a yoga teacher and uh, manager, and he's just left her. And when he left, a lot of the clients left with him. Um, so all of a sudden she just couldn't pay her bills anymore. Uh, so she's lost her lover. She has no children. She's turning 40. Uh, life is looking pretty bleak. And impulsively that summer, she takes a job stage managing for an outdoor, at an outdoor theater production of Shakespeare's King Lear. And actually, she's not a stage manager. She is just taking a job as assistant to the stage manager. And for anybody who's worked in theater, uh, you will know that assistant stage manager is probably the lowest rung on the theater hierarchy, um, social hierarchy. You're not in, on the creative side with the actors and the director. You're on production and uh, you're not even the stage manager, you're the assistant. Um, you, you're basically running around uh, making sure everybody has their socks and their costumes, and uh, it's a lot of busy work, um, frenetic busy work. And it's a job that places our protagonist, B, out of the spotlight, in the shadows, behind the scenes. So that's where we're gonna find her, in Montreal parks. The drama that she finds behind the scenes in this theater company turns out to be every bit as heated as what is going on on stage. 
there are flirtations, there are jealousies, there are old traumas, and uh, then also, to make matters worse, drama erupts in B's personal life on her home front. Uh, so bad enough, she's just had this lover leave and her, you know, her business fails and everything. But now her aging father, who's a widower who lives on his own in Westmount, begins to act erratically. And her sister Kara, whom B has always thought of as kind of um, the good sister, the good daughter, she has a fairy tale like marriage, she has a great career, she runs a uh, raw foods restaurant, very successful, very trendy in Montreal. And all of a sudden, Kara's life begins revealing cracks. So, all of this drama kind of comes together in the book. And B is forced by circumstances to move in with her father again. So back into the house in Westmount where she grew up and she finds herself rehearsing King Lear and being this assistant stage manager in the park right across the street from her childhood home. And this is where she used to play as a child. So she's back where she started in a kind of infantilized position um, in her dad's home, um, playing in the, you know, playing, trying to work in the park where she used to play as a child, a very young child. Um, and this is a place she has tried her entire adult life to escape from. And here she is forced by circumstances back into this kind of childhood place. Now, people who study theater or even in literature, we know that it's great to put a character in a place where she can't escape. It's called the crucible. You put a character in a really tight spot with a lot of, you know, discomfort and conflict and they just can't get out. And that's B's situation. She's back in her childhood home, the place of, you know, that real discomfort. Um, and for the moment she cannot escape. Uh, there you go. So the, origins of this novel. No, first I'm going to read you. I'm going to read you a little section. This is the prologue. So the book is divided like a play, like a Shakespeare play. And this is the very first section. I have quotes from Shakespeare dividing each section and the prologue's little um, beginning quote from King Lear, the play, is a quote from the character of Kent who was a very loyal servant of King Lear. Alas, sir, are you here? Things that love night love not such nights as these. So that's how the book begins. And um, actually the real epigraph that starts the novel, which is a very famous line, a line I love, is who is it, this also is from Lear, who is it that can tell me who I am? So that kind of sets the tone, the book's going to be about it, identity, and that, uh, that little ep epigraph kind of sets the tone. So here's the prologue, and this is about the character um, Saul, Saul Rose. This is B's father, the man who's beginning to act erratically. Uh, he is a clothing magnet uh, from Montreal. He's done very, very well in his life. Um, a wealthy man, he's used to taking control, being in control, and here he is. This is the opening of the novel. It's from his point of view. 
The old man knows he should watch the road, but he can't. His eyes keep drifting to the black churn of cloud overhead. Nightfall is still an hour away, but the sky is so dark he can't see the white lines on the pavement. He curses, gropes for the headlight switch, pressing buttons and turning knobs to no visible effect. The car plunges through the shadows down the final stretch of Pine Avenue, past the Royal Victoria Hospital and the grimy stone archway of the Neurological Institute. It weaves across lanes as though driven by someone crazy or blind or both. As the old man rounds the curve onto Park Avenue, brake lights ignite in front of him. These he can see. He slams down hard and stops a foot short of an aging Pontiac. Behind him, another car squeals to a stop. All the way up Park Avenue, cars are at a standstill, their taillights blinking in frustration. The old man kicks open his door. Above him, the sky is as oily and opaque as the asphalt. Wind slaps him, claws at his clothes, whips strands of hair across his scalp. He puts a hand over his eyes to shield them from the swirling grit and fights his way forward. Then he hears it, the beating heart of the chaos, a faint, steady patter of drums. Through the blur of wind and flashing lights, he sees them, arms linked, laughing like drunks at a party. They've choked the broad streets, the broad city street. They brought him and everyone around him to a halt, and they're laughing. The wind knocks him hard into a stopped car. He can see them clearly now, youngsters, shirtless, their chests decorated with paint. Two girls are half-naked, too, directly in his path, wearing bikini tops, or maybe they're brassiers. He moves closer grabbing the sides of vehicles for balance. One of the girls is fleshy, a pink-skinned child. The old man shoves her. He does it out of indignation, but also because she's the weak link in the chain. She comes unhooked from her companions and staggers, looking at him with round, astonished eyes. A boy shouts, a second boy spits at him, then grabs his arm and shakes it so hard his vision tunnels. He breaks free and continues through the bodies, through the shoves and shouts and gusts of wind, until something makes him look up. Above him, a black, winged enormity is etched against the sky's lesser blackness. He freezes. Then he realizes it's the angel. His angel gazing down benignly, pointing the way home. The sky lights up, making the angel gleam. A second flash comes, and the old man sees again the thing he thought was a hallucination. A rope is tied around the angel's neck. Someone is hanging from it. The sky blazes and goes dark, blazes and goes dark, God playing idly with a light switch. At the end of the rope is a girl, a thick tail of hair swinging behind her like a demented metronome. 
her feet brace against the angel's loins, while one of her arms sweeps up and down as if half of her were trying to fly. Thunder cracks, followed by shrieks. A drop of water hits the old man's forehead, then another. An instant later, the sky opens, obliterating the girl and scattering the crowd. He tries to run, but his limbs are useless, as in a nightmare. He collapses first onto one knee, then onto his shoulder. For one electric moment, as the pain sparks through him, his body fuses with the storm. The old man rolls onto his back. The last thing he sees, dimly, before closing his eyes, is a stricken angel in a drowned sky. So if you identified Park Avenue and the Georges-Étienne Cartier monument, the statue of the angel, that's exactly what he's seeing. So he's, a, he's in a very feverish state, this character. Um, but he's seeing that very famous Montreal icon, the angel on Park Avenue. So the origins of this novel In the summer of 2011, I actually had the chance to work with Repercussion Theatre. And Repercussion is a theatre that maybe you know about, maybe you've seen, you've watched. It puts on Shakespeare productions in Montreal parks during the summer. And that summer of 2011, Repercussion was doing Macbeth, the Scottish play. You may even have seen that production because I know I'm talking to a Montreal audience here. It had a great cast, a great crew. I thought it was a really good show. Um, and there you go. And I knew a little bit about theater through my husband, who happens to be an actor, a local actor, Arthur Holden. Uh, he's a local playwright and actor. Um, but I was a complete novice to the stage. And that summer was a very steep learning curve during which I learned a whole new skill set. I also got to see theater from the backstage for the first time. And what a discovery that was. It was absolutely hilarious. It was funnier and even more dramatic behind the scenes than out front. And it reminded me very much of Michael Frayn's play Noises Off that came to the Siegel Center quite a few years ago, maybe five years ago now. I don't know if anybody out there saw that production, but I thought it was the funniest thing. I couldn't stop laughing. Um, it was a terrific production. And in, in at the Siegel Center, they had a rotating stage with the play being presented on one side and then what was going on backstage was on the other side and the stage would rotate uh, for different scenes or different acts, I guess. So Noises Off, the, the title of Michael Frayn's play, it actually is a stage direction. It means that the production's about to go on and um, a play's about to go on and that all noises from backstage have to end. So the experience that I had being a, an assistant stage manager that summer with repercussion gave me material for a new novel. I knew I had a new novel right away. It was 
you know, a lot of stuff was going on and I, I just was so inspired by it. Um, and I, I had wanted to write a novel with Shakespeare at its center and there it was um, brewing away. So the next year I was editing my second novel, My October, and I was tossing around um, ideas for this new Shakespeare novel. Um, and that happened to be 2012, and it was the Printemps Érable, the Maple Spring, um, uh, Maple Spring kind of breaking out of the student protests in Quebec. So that spring, it started as a student protest over the tuition hikes, if you remember. Charest was uh, the liberal premier in Quebec. Um, it was exceptionally mild and beautiful that spring and perfect for evening walks. And soon the entire city was out in the streets and everybody was marching at 8 p.m. So every night at 8 p.m. there would be a march in downtown Montreal to, it started to protest these um, tuition hikes, but eventually it turned into a much bigger uh, show of discontentment with the government. Um, and with people running things and kind of the, um, the establishment, really. So the protesters, if you remember, were called les casseroles, and they wore red squares, little felt red squares pinned to their chests, and soon everybody in the city was wearing these felt squares, these carrés rouges, they were called, red squares including Pauline Marois, who was the official Quebec opposition leader, and many prominent Quebec artists, intellectuals, writers, everybody seemed to be wearing these. And the marches lasted in Montreal over a hundred nights. It was incredible. And on the hundredth night of protest, which was May 22nd, 2012, 250,000 people were out in the streets. So this was not just a simple student protest over tuition anymore. Uh, union leaders were out there, artists, actors, professors, ordinary people, families, the young, the not so young. And uh, it was quite something. So in the beginning, the, the protests were peaceful and there were some acts of civil disobedience. But then... Um, I would say some uncivil disobedience erupted. So there was graffiti. So that statue of the angel that you just saw in the prologue, um, there was graffiti written on it, all over it, it was defaced. Um, and stones were thrown in, and windows were smashed. The metro was shot, shut down with a smoke bomb. There was a lot of stuff going on. And of course, I was out there watching it, and uh, my fiction antenna were out gathering impressions for this future fiction novel. Um, and I had by that time picked the play King Lear. And in King Lear, what I liked about Lear was that old men were pitted against young people. So just like in uh, Montreal that spring, um, the printemps érable, you know, was perfect. It was the young people really challenging the old establishment, the older order, and uh, the setting was great. You know, obviously I was going to set this thing in Montreal, 
the spring and summer of 2012. It just fit with, um, with what I was trying to do with some of the ideas that were coming up. Summer of 2012, that was a time of political tumult, uh, youthful re revolt. Uh, everything seemed to be um, kind of being challenged, you know, challenging the establishment, the old order. The other thing in Shakespeare's King Lear um, that's very prominent besides the challenging of the old order is storms. So these huge, violent rainstorms. And um, the weather in, in the play, in Shakespeare's play, King Lear, seems to mirror the fury of this raging, aging monarch who feels his powers slipping away. And in Shakespeare's play, King Lear, and I, I use that play a lot in my novel, characters talk in, in Shakespeare's play about the weather as if something awful has happened to the natural world, as if something, some kind of essential balance in nature has been lost. And the words nature and natural and unnatural are repeated 40 times in Shakespeare's play, King Lear. So everything is kind of askew, off kilter, the cosmos, the political uh, life in King Lear is off, there's strife, there's betrayal, there's plots to kill, um, rightful rulers and heirs, and in the personal sphere too, everything's off kilter, out of balance, uh, chaotic, uh, violent, crazy kind of madness re is replacing civility and good sense. So everything's unnatural, disharmony, disordered um, in this play. And the summer of 2012 in Montreal felt a little bit like that too. Um, uh, so in my novel, I've got raging weather. And sure enough, in the summer of 2012, the weather was horrific. Um, we had like global warming was on everybody's lips because there were there was heat, really intense heat, and torrential downpours, and um, the weather was just the the topic that summer. <laughs> Uh, and people were saying, ah, oh, the earth seems to be really off balance. We're in the throes of some kind of big cosmic disorder. Of course, we were talking about climate change then. And, uh, and then on the political level, there was all this kind of chaos as well unfolding in Montreal streets. So all of that was coming together in my novel. Um, yeah, and then the one other thing I'll mention is I saw a production, it was a 2014 production of King Lear done by National Theatre Live, and the director was Sam Mendes and, and Simon B Russell Beale was playing Lear. It's a great production if you ever get to see it. And in the intermission, there was an interview with the guy who plays Lear, um, Simon Russell Beale, and he spoke about the research he did for his role as King Lear, and he mentioned a form of dementia I'd never heard of before, Lewy body dementia, and he listed the symptoms for this, this, this kind of dementia. Sleepwalking, frequent slipping from lucidity into states of confusion, frustration and rage, even hallucinations. 
And he said that Shakespeare's King Lear was a textbook example of someone with Lewy body dementia. And that um, interview hit me like a thunderbolt. And I was writing about, of course, aging fathers and grown daughters. And this material I knew would also go into the novel. So that's about it. Um, yeah, so I think I think this is all I want to say, and I'll do a couple of readings just to end. A couple more passages. I'd like to give you, most of the book is written from um, the point of view of B. Rose, who is Saul's daughter, the old man that you saw in the prologue. So this is B. Rose, and here I'm going to show you her. She's in her apartment. It's the night of... Um, it's the night of a meet and greet. She's about to go to a party, a meet and greet party, to meet the cast of Bard in the Park Theatre Company, where she's just been hired, to meet her new boss, the stage manager, and the cast of King Lear. And it's a really important night uh, at the start of what she thinks is going to be her new life. So here's a little bit about B. She's standing and she is considering where she's just come from. Her partner, Jean Christian, has just left her. He left in February and um, she's thinking about that. Jean Christian had come in February for his belongings. Among the items he'd left with was the rice paper globe that had once softened the bathroom light and made intriguing shadows. A naked bulb remained, dangling dejectedly from the ceiling. Also gone was the shower curtain, with its bright motif of tropical fish. She'd been at work when he dropped by. He knew her schedule it was easy to find on the studio website, but he knew it without checking. Her schedule had been his. For seven years, they'd managed Om Sweet Om together offering yoga classes and workshops and running a popular teacher training program. They were well known. Their studio had been one of the best. Not as big as the places downtown, perhaps, but reputable, respected. Even her father had been impressed. The light cast visible lines in the face in the bathroom mirror, especially around the eyes, from which they fanned like cracks in a windshield. B would turn 40 this summer. No man, no money, and a business on the point of collapse. She'd spent the winter adrift. She should have gone for counseling. That's what her sister Kara said. But B didn't have the money or, frankly, the desire for therapy. She didn't need a psychologist to tell her what was wrong. The breakup had hit her hard. Jean Christian had given her no warning. There had been a third party. She never did find out who. Behind that pain was the deeper anguish of her mother, the old trauma, the ghost in the shadows. It didn't take a degree in psychology to see where the trouble lay. She would survive this loss just as she'd survived the one in her childhood. She still had some fight left. And I'll just read this last portion this is when she actually gets to the party that night, and it's a discussion between her, B. Rose, 
and her new boss, Dave Samuels, who is the stage manager for the production, about the nature of stage managing. So here you go. After a few minutes of shouting and gesticulating for the group, Dave pulled B off to one side. So, he said, eyeing the jam-packed room, what do you think? B shrugged. She didn't want to admit to being overwhelmed. It was all so different from the silence and emptiness of her yoga studio. Big gang, she said cautiously. Dave grinned, always with Mr. Shakespeare. It's your job and mine to look after each and every one of them. B hesitated. Um, what is it I'll be doing exactly? She had no idea what a stage manager actually did, let alone an assistant. It sounded a little intimidating. B looked at her a moment. Sorry, Dave looked at her a moment then launched into a list of all the things she'd be helping him with, everything from looking after props to line prompting and doing something called blocking, whatever that was. As he rattled off her duties, she tried desperately to absorb them all. Finally, he paused, performing the periscope motion with his head again. There are two kinds of stage managers, B. There are mothers and there are sergeant majors. He watched her reaction. I'm a mother. B laughed, but Dave's expression remained serious. It's basically my only requirement of you, he said. Motherhood, said B. A boy with studs in his eyebrows was going to teach her, an unwed, childless woman on the brink of 40, about motherhood. So that's all I'll do for today. I thank you very much for your ears, for listening, and I really hope that you read this book. Um, pick it up from the library in audiobook or um, in a real book with paper, maybe when this, when our uh, when our isolation ends. And it's called *Lear Shadow* by Claire Holden Rothman. following is brought to you by Recreation CSL and is an excerpt from Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess, presented by the Siegel Center for Performing Arts. Hmm. Thanks so much for being here, everyone. It means a lot to me. I really look forward to these Saturday nights, getting to hang out with all of you like this, sing some show tunes, maybe discover some new ones. Good. Hey, well, why don't we do a couple of um, newer musicals um, before we get back to some classics. So these are some musicals, I'm going to um, set them up a little bit. Well, not really set them up, but at least let you know what they're from, because you may not know them. So this one's from Mean Girls. It's notoriously hard to sing. Um, so watch me make like 10 mistakes. But that's okay. Um, yeah, so this is I'd Rather Be Me. Uh, and essentially, you know, what I love about it is that a lot of the newer shows that are out there on Broadway now... Um, What's so amazing about them is that the female characters, the strong, young female characters are defining what happens to them. They're the ones who create the actions. Um, a lot of the time in the past, some you know, problems with musicals, the female characters, often everything kind of happens to them. Like the, the men are making all of the decisions and the girl is kind of like, everything's happening to her and they don't often get a say in things that propel the story forward, you know? 
Um, so without getting into, into it too much, I love, I love, if I think of Mythic, all of these strong female characters, um, they're the ones who drive the story forward. They're the ones who are making decisions that are changing their lives. And I just love this empowerment in these newer musicals that we're giving to our younger generation of women so that they can go out in the world and they can be strong and they can say, you know what, I can make decisions for myself and I don't need guys telling me what to do. So yeah, big, 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 big applause for that. So in the song, um, you know, this girl's saying like, I'd rather be me. I'm making decisions to be myself and that's all right. So that's what I really, really like about this next song. So your best friend screwed you over, acted nice, but she not nice. Well, I have some advice, cause this happened to me twice. Here's my secret strategy, it always works because the world doesn't end, it just feels like it does. So raise your right finger and solemnly swear whatever they say. She's like 10 or 11 years old, maybe, and the performance is absolutely breathtaking. So once we're done at 7.30, the first thing you should do is go on YouTube and write Ring of Keys Tony Awards and see this girl perform the song about having realizations about who you are. And we've all been there before when we're younger and we don't yet have the words to 
describe what's happening because it's all happening so quickly and the, the the song is so brilliant because the the writer doesn't find the words so the actor is stuck trying to find them for themselves and it's just brilliant so this is the song if you don't know it then enjoy it here we go so she says someone just came in the door like no one i've ever seen Mystery, I promise. 
Everybody dies A 
That was late, The Ladies Who Lunch from Company. And there's some amazing, amazing stories from that show I want to share with you. So, the first one that I love is that when Stephen Sondheim wrote the song, he really wrote it as like a, a showstopper for Elaine Stritch, who was the original character. Mm. And uh, he really felt that at the end, the, the rise, rise, like sing it like so many times, he really thought that um, people were going to give a standing ovation because, you know, when you tell an audience to rise and you've got your martini glass and... But it turns out that she was so terrifying and so exact in, in her delivery of the song that people just sort of remained stunned. And it was like that for the entire run and no one ever stood, uh, even though it says rise so many times and he was sure they were gonna give a standing ovation. My other favorite story from Company is uh, about Elaine Stritch also. So in the song, there's a lyric that uh, says, a matinee, a pinter play, perhaps a piece of Mahler's. And so the, the story goes that um, they're on a break and so Elaine Stritch goes up to Stephen Sondheim, Steve, she would have called him. And she says, Steve, you know, like what kind of pastry is a Mahler's? And Stephen Sondheim says, excuse me, Elaine? And she says, yeah, you know, like they, they go to a matinee, they go to a pinter play, and then they have a piece of Mahler's. Like, what, what kind of a pastry is a Mahler's? And like, where do you, where do you get, where do you find this from? And so apparently, Stephen Sondheim just said, Elaine, I need to go to the bathroom. And then turned around and walked away. And that was it. So that's the story about Elaine Stritch and her piece of Mahler's. <laughs> of course, Mahler is a composer, but you know. <laughs> I love it. So next time you're in New York City, go for a piece of Mahler's at like at Minsky's. Sing it, 
He's a father, he knows best. Our kids watch howdy doody while the sun sets in the west. A picture out of better homes and gardens magazine. Far from Skid Row, I dream we'll go. So I hope you like that little um, uh, little shop of horrors tribute. How about a tune from Pajama Gang? That's what you never do. Lady to begin. 
my side Sing with me, baby, I'm the fella you came in with Lock me, a lady Lock me, a lady Lock me, a lady Tonight, coming up, coming up, coming up, coming up, right Ha! <laughs> Thank you, Hope, that's kind of you to say um, what I love about the song and that I think is a brilliant, you know, some Broadway songs, the accompaniments really lend themselves to the storytelling and I find that so exciting. This idea of luck and like gambling, right? So the entire song, well, except like once it gets going, I mean, is kind of always in two keys at once, right? It's quite remarkable that the melody works with these chords. So listen. It's like D flat, D, D flat, D, pretty much the entire way. And then it goes up to D. So that's the accompaniment, but it really feels like, um, I always imagine like a roulette wheel spinning, and it's like, is it going to land on red? Is it going to land on black? Like, what's it going to land on? Um, and it creates this incredible excitement that you never know what it's going to land on. I pretty much know the very end of the song, right? It goes all the way till the end. Coming up, coming up, coming up, coming up, right? Finally, it actually settles on the, you know, the chord of the key that you're in, but terribly exciting and brilliant. So I love that. thought I'd share that. I've never been in love before Now all at once it's you It's you forevermore I've never been in love before I thought my heart was safe I thought I knew the score But this is one that's all too strange I'm full of foolish song, and out my song must pour. So please forgive this helpless days I'm in. I've really never been in That concludes this segment of Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess presented by the Siegel Center for Performing Arts and brought to you by the Parks and Recreation Department of Cote St. Luke. Well, that is today's episode of the Cote St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service. If you're listening at 2 p.m. on our phone line, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.